0: Well, good morning, Village Church. I'm Matt, i the pastor of the village, I'm glad to be with you. Um, and we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you can see, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here to join us in this. Um, I've been doing this, I don't know, a little over 20 years. And when I started um, in full-time vocational ministry a little over 20 years ago, I had a mentor um, who would tell me this when, um, well, when I did something foolish. He would share a proverb with me that I think I've shared with you on time and occasion, which is, life is hard and it's even harder when you're stupid. And and he had a southern draw and he would say Matthew, you know, and he would say he would say the phrase. And so so for fear of him sounding crass because he was not crass, it was much more of an endearing thing than an indicting thing. He wasn't meaning to indict me. It was an endearing phrase, it was an endearing way to say like I've made that mistake too. And some of it is just some of it's just foolishness that comes along with well living life in a broken world and certainly trying to be engaged in in vocational ministry in a broken world and as broken people. Um, life is hard enough. I think that was the point of what he was trying to say. Life is hard enough. Life is hard enough with the effects of sin in the world, in, in our lives. Life is hard enough. A- and we are all to one extent or another, we are all to one degree or another foolish. Or we all act foolishly at one time or another, to one degree or another, because... Well, because the effects of sin in our lives and on our lives and in the world and on the world. But the good news this morning is that God is gracious. That God is gracious and that even though we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world, God is gracious to give us wisdom. God is gracious to give us even his wisdom, even through common grace, to all people that live under the sun, S U N. And this morning as we open Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 again, we're going to see that there is wisdom that is really wise, for lack of a better term, for our lives. It's God's wisdom for our lives. And we can get some of it through, well, God's common grace. And some of it will even point to God's uncommon grace that he has shown us in Jesus. So this morning, um, just a little warning or a little disclaimer. This passage, commentators say, is the, the hardest one in the book of Ecclesiastes to organize. So you can read it through and you can read it through, but they don't really know why he organized his thoughts the way he did or kind of how he goes back and forth. It's a tough passage to organize. It's a tough passage to, to preach through. It's a tough passage to, to sort of break down in a setting like this. And so I'm going to do my best. But I, I can tell you that what is most obvious is that this passage is broken up in pictures and in Proverbs and in principles. And I didn't come up with all the P words. They're just there, right? It's just, it is what it is. There are pictures that the teacher is trying to paint. There are proverbs that he includes in his teaching, and there are principles that we can draw from them. That's what he's doing this morning, I believe. And my sense is that the teacher does this through four, I think they're kind of hard to notice sections of this section of Scripture, but I'm going to do my best to break it down for us this morning. I think the first section we would head something like this, wisdom and our world. Wisdom and our world. What does wisdom look like in the world that we live in? And it starts in verse 13 when he says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. So pause for a moment. The teacher is saying, this is a great example. This is a nugget of wisdom. You're not going to want to miss this. There was a little city with a few men in it. And a great king came against it, and he besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. That is the picture. That is the parable in a sense. Here is the principle, I believe. Force is folly. Real strength comes through wisdom. We live in a world where our leaders seek to use power and position to force their worldly agenda on the masses. And I would say, especially God's people. We feel that, I believe, as God's people. And it feels like it's working, doesn't it? It feels like it's inevitable, that there's the powers that be, the economic and political powers that be, are just pushing us down this, this track. And that, that's, that's nothing new. This has been happening for thousands of years. And it just seems it's inevitable, that the world will be sort of given over to it. <laughs> Seems like California might be the epicenter, right? It's going to start here and move its way eastward. And I say, well, how can we live and prosper in a world like this where, where political and economic powers use their power to press us in a particular direction that may not be the direction of God and to press us into foolishness, not into wise living? I think the simple answer is we should live our lives in the quiet strength that wisdom provides. And this is timeless wisdom. Thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul would write these words, the teacher sees it, the Apostle Paul sees it, many, many, many years removed. This is timeless wisdom. Paul says, but we urge you brothers, to do this more and more, that is love one another, he's been talking about previously, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. Live a quiet life, work with your hands, like mind your own business, take care of your family and the people around you. Don't get too overly involved in those outward affairs. Over the COVID season, there was this movement that was sort of birthed called the kingdom-minded or the faith-driven entrepreneur movement And I think part of the reason it was birthed during those years was because, well, people wanted to find a way to mind their own business and to work with their hands and to focus their own stuff and to not be constrained by the powers that be. We can see how these ideas bubble up even in our culture, timeless wisdom from the teacher and from Paul, thousands of years apart. The hard news is that living this way might not get you noticed. Which actually is part of the point. (laughs) Paul's saying you don't want to draw too much attention to yourself. Kind of odd in a culture that we live in, isn't it? But it will get the job done. It may not get you the attention or the notice that you want. It's part of the point, but it will get the job done. Like the poor wise man pictured in this parable, wisdom works. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. You know, it may not always be this way. There may be seasons when we have leaders that listen more to the wisdom of the everyday person than the other. In our context, we might have political leaders that in one season listen to the average American more than the other. But it only takes one foolish leader to ruin the progress and return to just ruling with force. And I know there are some people that think, yeah, that was the deal with the last administration. They ruined it. And there's some people that think, yeah, that's the deal with this administration. They ruined it. And whatever you think, let me just tell you, someone is going to ruin it. (laughs) Whatever little progress we can make, someone is going to ruin it. That's what the author is telling us. This is a timeless truth. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, verse 10. But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfume's ointment give off a stench. That's a pretty picture. In those days, perfume would be stored and sometimes it wouldn't have a lid and the flies would get in. This would literally happen. The dead flies would produce a stench that would outweigh the smell of the perfume. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So how do we live in a world like this? How do we live in a world where leaders and legislation can go from one degree of folly to another? shirking the little wisdom that is to be had, the little wisdom that they might even find through God's common grace. Well, how do we live in a world like that where, well, our governing authorities exercise authority that's not wise, it's foolish. Verse 2 of chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, he's not writing about politics here, okay? But if you're on one side, you might want to use that, I you know? but it, it, But... A wise man's heart inclines to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Don't use it that way because it's not meant that way. In ancient Israel, though, the right hand was actually a place of moral goodness. It was a, it symbolized moral goodness. And the left hand actually symbolized perversity. We see this in the play out itself in the New Testament. As Jesus tells his parable of the sheeps and the goats, the sheep are on the right and the goats are on the left. This is the princi- the parable. This is the picture. But the principle, I believe, is something like this, that wisdom chooses what is morally right, not what is politically expedient. In this section, the, the words that repeat themselves all the time are like kings and rulers and folly and wisdom. And he is talking about political rulers. He is talking about government because that is, that is what most of us are under when we live our life under the sun. We're, we're all under some form of government. And we are living in a world that's increasingly pushing us to make culturally and politically expedient choices. And it's becoming easier and easier to do it. And it's becoming more and more socially acceptable not to do it. I mean, just ask any teenager in this room and ask them how difficult it is to be a junior high or a high school or a college student today. When you don't go along with all the politically expedient, the culturally expedient talking points. This is not wisdom. It is not wisdom to live our lives with political or socially expedient choices. When I was a youth pastor, I, I used this analogy with with our youth students, and it was like because they would use protractors, and everyone hated them, and some of them would use those those ones with the points to stab each other, right? So like, but but you know the one I'm talking about that you can set at a certain degree, and I used to use this analogy. It's like well, God's people are here, and the world is sort of here, and there's this like 90 degree angle, or yeah, that's a 90 degree angle, 90 degree angle, right? And we're, this was sort of like level of separation. But what happens is like instead of staying like where we are, what the church tends to do, what Christians have tended to do with these cultural movements is, is the Christians kind of just move a little bit. So the world moves and the Christians move. And we just stay the same degree of separation away from the world. When all the while it's just like, no, 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 like if the world moves, that's fine. We're staying here. We're not going anywhere. Like the world can move this way. We're, we're just staying right here. That's, that's where God's called us to stay Wisdom chooses what is morally right, not what is politically expedient. If we live our lives making decisions that are morally right or morally and politically rather expedient, we'll end up looking more and more foolish. And in the end, you know what? Everybody knows that. The teacher knows it. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, when he says to everyone, I think what it's actually meaning is his life says to everyone. When, when a fool walks along the road, he lacks sense. And he, even his life, his life, the way he lives his life is saying to everyone that he is foolish, that he is a fool. And more, there are so many examples. And for fear of opening a huge can of worms, I'm just going to say the obvious one this morning. That we live in a world that is today calling men, women, and women, men and boys, girls, and girls, boys, and we're walking down this road and they want us—they want to push us down this road. And even the most basic things in life, like walking down a road or like knowing what a man and a woman is, we are, pr- we are proving we are foolish. Our culture is proving that it's foolish and everybody knows it and people are beginning to actually talk about this idea that wow, maybe we have taken this a little too far. Now I know as I mentioned stuff like that, um, these things can get us fired up. And sometimes it does me as well, seeing the impact of these foolish choices in people's lives and the foolishness of our, of our world pressing these things on us and destroying people's lives. And when we get fired up, we might, <laughs> we might get ourselves in a little hot water. Like I might get myself in a little hot water this morning. We could get ourselves in hot water with those around us when we just state what is simply obviously true Even people in powerful positions. And if so, what do we do? What do we do when we get ourselves kind of fired up about these? When we see these these things, we're like, that's not right. That's not the way it is. That's so obviously foolish. What a lack of wisdom. How can we live like that? What do we do? Well, the teacher tells us in verse 4, If the anger of the ruler arises against you, if you get yourself in hot water, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. We've all seen the series, Keep Calm, right? Whatever it is, just keep calm. It's actually a biblical idea. It's, it's the oldest idea that there is. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now look, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but this, that's not Right? Like, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair that, like, people—the world can press us into a place where where they're living with such a lack of wisdom and try to press it on all of us. And, yeah, that can kind of get me fired up. I think I'm a little righteously angry about that. I'm upset about the right thing for the right reason. I think I'm acting in the right way. Like, why I can't say anything. I'm not supposed to raise my voice. I'm not supposed to— The teacher knows we're thinking about this, that this is not right. And he says in verse 5— There is an evil that I've seen under the sun. He calls it what it is. As it were, an air proceeding from the ruler. Like this air proceeding from the people that rule over us. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the road like slaves. What he's saying is life under the sun is backwards. Life under the sun is broken. Life under the sun is upside down. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The teacher sees this and he says, it's not supposed to be this way. The world is meant to be led with wisdom from people who get their wisdom from God. And so often it's not like that. The teacher acknowledges, I know, it's backwards, it's broken, it's upside down. The teacher knows it. And he knows the best that we can do is to walk in wisdom in light of it. So I believe he begins to offer some wisdom about the thing that we do most in life. And I think this is the second big section, and I think we can call it something like this, wisdom and our work. Wisdom and our work, because the reality is we are going to live under a backwards, broken, upside-down world. This is not the way God created things to be. We live in a world like this. How do we live every day in the midst of the things we do? Well, the teacher offers us some very, very practical wisdom. If the best we can do is to walk quietly in wisdom, what does that look like when we go to work? I think verses 8 and 9 begin to give us a picture. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So these are, the, these are the pictures, and I know they're not very contextual for us. I'm gonna do my best at the moment, but I think the principle is this, pay attention to your work. Pay attention to your work, because a little mistake can be very costly. See, if the hunter doesn't pay attention, he's gonna fall into his own pit. Like in that day, people would go hunt for their food or they'd go hunt for food to sell to other people and they would dig pits and they'd cover them with leaves. But if they didn't pay attention to the work, they might actually fall in the same pit that they dug. If a contractor doesn't pay attention when repairing a wall, he could end up getting bitten by a snake that's high- hidden in one of the cracks. If the stonemason doesn't pay attention when they're quarrying rocks, especially in a place like Israel where there's lots of hills, that rock is on a hill and it can roll over on your foot or your leg or on your head. <laughs> it's dangerous kind of work if you don't pay attention. If the lumberjack doesn't pay attention to the logs that he's splinting, he can end up splintering himself. And I'm not talking about the little one that gets in your finger and bugs you. I'm talking about the one that, that hits a vein and kills you. I'm talking about a large splinter. I'm talking about cutting himself or crushing himself or hurting himself beyond repair. The picture is that when we, I believe, when we don't pay attention to our work, we end up making mistakes that can hurt us. And unfortunately, it doesn't take a big mistake to have a big consequence. I think all of us are familiar with job reviews, or most of us are, and you could go through your your whole year, you know, going through your year, doing your work and making little mistakes here and there, and at the end of the year, they could all sort of come to the surface, and they've added up, well, to something that's, and well, that's so pleasant. Right. Wisdom says this, and um, Jesus says something about this, actually. He is the wisdom of God, in fact. In John chapter 5, Jesus says Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does. Likewise, Jesus paid attention to what the father was saying. He paid attention to the initiative that the father was taking with. He paid attention to the spirit that was prompting him and leading him and guiding him. Jesus paid attention to his work, which was to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus paid attention to his work. Early church leaders told the church, told God's people, pay attention to your work. Paul to the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not to men so that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Pay attention to your work. But There's another principle I believe that's at work here. Um, look at verses 10 11. If the iron's blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. That's, those are the pictures. And Again, I know in our context, not many of us snake charmers for work, right? Like not many of us doing this sort of work. Not many of us splitting wood, uh, at least in our context. Um, but I, I, these are the pictures. I think the principle is this. Prepare well for your work. Don't just pay attention to your work. But in this context under the sun, just prepare well for your work. Because a small lack of preparation can have well, large consequences, right? So if the woodworker doesn't prepare well for his work by sharpening his tools, his work is gonna be harder than it needs to be, and it's gonna take more time than it needs to take, and he's gonna get frustrated, and he might actually hurt himself as he's doing his work. If the snake charmer doesn't prepare well, it kinda has a little bit more dire consequence. Like if he's rushed, if he doesn't prepare well, if he doesn't get the snake charm, and he tries to grab the snake before it's charmed, was gonna get bit, and most likely he's going to die. It will have grave consequences. And this idea of preparing for our work is, again, it's a timeless truth. Even Jesus prepared for his work. In Luke chapter 4, we, we read that after Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when Those days were ended, he was hungry, and that begins the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus goes to the wilderness for 40 days to be prepared for the ministry that he's he's walking into. Jesus prepared himself. His life prepared him, his life experience, but this defining moment was a moment that prepared him. And for you and I, it might be the same way. You might look back at your life and you might see all the things that God has done in your life and he's preparing you for the work that you're doing. But there actually might be a time and place where there's actually a defining moment where you need to actually go prepare for something specific. And the early church leaders, again, they talked about the same thing Paul did to the church in Galatia when he talked about the work that he was doing and how he prepared. He said, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he who called me to his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And the verses following, Paul reveals that that was three years. That Paul took three years to prepare for the ministry that God was inviting him into. I don't know if it would need 40 days or if it would need three years or how many weeks your preparation for the work that God's inviting you into would take. But I know this, that the work you're doing right now is likely preparing you for the work that you're gonna do two to three years from now. And that's generally true in life. The way we're living right now will actually produce the results we're looking for two to three years from now. So pay attention to your work and prepare well for your work. So the teacher talks about wisdom in the world at the highest levels, like at the level of, of politics and government. And then he talks about wisdom, wisdom for our work which is where we spend most of our time working under the sun and under those economic systems and governments. And last, I believe, we see a third section, which is wisdom with our words. Because according to the Bible, that is the primary way that we prove if we are wise or foolish. Matter of fact, um, as you read the book of Proverbs, you've probably noticed this. The word, the tongue, or that phrase, is the number one topic in the book of Proverbs. You just skim the book of Proverbs today when you go home and you will find that the tongue, that that is the number one word or phrase in the book of Proverbs. It's used over a hundred times. And here, catch this, it's used in every single chapter. There's not a chapter in the book of Proverbs where the the tongue or that phrase is not used in one way, shape, or form. And again, the Bible doesn't highlight things. It doesn't underline them things. But this is one of the ways the Bible tells us things. The tongue is spoken of in every book in the book, in every book, every chapter, rather, in the book of Proverbs, which is a place I think we typically think about uh, where the Bible talks about this kind of obvious wisdom. Wisdom and our words. Look at verse 12 with me. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. And then we see this picture here, and again, the principle, I think, is something like this. So go your words, so goes your life. So go your words, so goes your life. I think the principle here is that if we want a a faithful and if we want a fruitful and if we want a favorable life, we will use wise, not foolish words. He's literally saying that uh, the use of foolish words can literally ruin your life. Proverbs 18, 7 A fool's mouth is his ruin, it is his ruin. And his lips are a snail snare all the way down t- to the level of the soul. Think about how many ways we could ruin our life today with the things we say. <laughs> Think about the impact of posting the wrong thing online. We know this from personal experience. We have a really good friend of ours, a lifelong friend who, who has a friend um, who, um, well, whose daughter has a friend who, who posted something online when at college. And... Um, I don't think there's a lot of malice meant by it, um, but she said the wrong thing. And it destroyed a relationship with her, her friends. It destroyed a relationship on campus. Uh, it made her have to actually leave the school. Uh, it made other schools not want to actually accept her into the place that she was going. I mean, we live in a world where literally, like, you say the wrong thing, it can ruin your life. This is not something new. This is ancient, old, reliable wisdom. You might say, well, then how do I know what to say and what not to say if, if like, I say the wrong thing and it can ruin my life? And I, I just wrote this phrase up there. And listen, this phrase is for me as much as for anyone. When in doubt, don't. <laughs> Isn't that pretty simple? Like, if you have a doubt in your mind if you're supposed to say something or not, wisdom probably says, just don't do that. Just don't say it. Jesus received a lot of favor from his words eventually his words got him in a little hot water although his words were very true and he knew it was coming when he started his ministry we see phrases like this all over in Matthew 7 when Jesus finished these sayings the crowds were astonished at his teaching why because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes it says the same in Mark and elsewhere people were like literally in awe of the words that Jesus spoke his words gained him favor so much for that it said so much so that thousands of people started following and throngs of crowds, countless multitudes, following, not just because of what he did, but what he said. Early church leaders talked about this too. You're probably thinking about the book of James because it deals with a lot of this this a lot on this subject of wisdom. James 3, 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The way we speak has a tremendous impact. So go our words, so goes our life. The teacher says, this is actually really important. This is really, really important because once you start down that road of foolish speech, it becomes that much easier to keep going further and further down that road. Look at verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth, the fool, is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. I think the principle here is this, that how you begin talking is how you will keep talking. If you're a young person here this morning, you need to hear this very clearly. How you begin talking is how you will keep talking. If you begin talking one day, one way you will likely continue in that progression If you begin talking one way, you will likely continue in that direction. Once you start talking one way, it will be really hard to stop. And it generally gets worse, not better. Have you ever stood up in front of a crowd and and you get in um, a place where you have to give a speech and you're a little, um, well, you're not used to doing that so often. And you hear yourself, you're practicing from the mirror and you hear yourself saying um and like all the time. And you're like, I'm not going to say like. And you're like, so like, I like, I, ugh, I'm not going to say like. It's so like, the more times you say it, the more you say it. <laughs> I'm not going to say um. Well, um, well, um, and he, um, and, and you, you, and you're standing, you're trying to practice, and you can't stop it because that's the way you've been talking. Once you start talking that way, you will keep talking that way. When I was in sixth grade, I had a potty mouth. When I was in sixth grade, I had a potty mouth. When I was in sixth grade, I talked one way around my parents and another way around my friends because I thought it was cool. You ever been there? And I got to tell you that, like, how I, I don't want to talk like that, but I did. I was a follower and not a leader, and that is not the way anyone should live. I was in sixth grade, I guess. But if you're young and you're talking one way, like, it's hard to stop. It was hard for me to stop for a season, right? I don't want to talk that way. Once you start down a road, no matter how old you are, you'll continue to go down. As a matter of fact, if you're older, you're probably just going to continue down that much easier. It's hard to break old habits. Jesus um, saw this in the religious leaders of his day. When he talked to the Pharisees, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Jesus saw, like, you're not going to stop speaking this way in this direction because it's actually coming from your heart. Again, James says this. It's not, it's not, it's not new wisdom. This is old wisdom. Je- James says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great evil. How great a force is set ablaze by a small fire. We already read that, but here's what he continues to say. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. That sounds pretty bad. I think James is probably saying is once you start down that direction with your tongue, you're going to keep moving. And it's going to get so deep that it sets on fire the, course, the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. How you begin talking is how you will keep talking. But the teacher says foolish people don't just keep talking, keep ruining their lives through the foolish talking that, they, that they're undergoing. But they constantly talk about well, how things will get better in the future. I could talk like this and live like this now, but, like, uh, things will get better. Like, I'll, I'll change that in the, in the future. Like, things will get better in the future while well, not living wisely in the present. And the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, says that's actually really unwise. Verses 14 and 15, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what, is, what will be after him? The toil of fool wearies him. For he does not know the way to the city. I think the principle is this, that it's foolish to talk about tomorrow while neglecting today. It's foolish to talk about tomorrow while neglecting today because because who knows what will happen tomorrow. Especially if we're acting foolishly in the present. Actually, it's really easy to know what will happen tomorrow for acting foolishly in the present, right? Probably more foolishness. Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, For you do not know what a day may bring. Again, James talking about wisdom. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. As it is your boast and your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do in the present and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Don't just talk about the future. Concentrate on the present. It's foolishness to talk about tomorrow while neglecting today. Teacher, I think, has two bookends. It's, it's the world and, and wisdom, and the world and wisdom, and in the middle is our words and our works in wisdom. So now we're at the last bookend, wisdom and our world again. Look at verses 16 through 19 with me. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast in the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. I'll explain that in a moment. <laughs> I think the principle here is this walk in wisdom, even during the worst times. Walk in wisdom, even during the worst times. Like he says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Like there will be times where there are better political leaders government leaders, economic leaders, than than others. Those leaders that govern our lives. There will be better times than others, but there are going to be some really bad times. Woe to you when your child is a king and your princes feast in the morning. Like they're just eating for drunkenness and drinking all the time. they're, They're lazy. They're not giving themselves to serving the people that are under them. They're just... They're just eating and drinking. And th- this is the song, I believe, they sing to themselves. Better, better bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Most commentators think that's the song that these ungodly political leaders sing. They eat and they drink and they spend money frivolously on themselves and not on the people that are under them, that they're supposed to be governing and to that, I believe, the teacher says, walk in wisdom even during the worst times. When that's at its worst, God still calls us to walk in wisdom. There will be different seasons of leadership on our world, better times and worse times. But even during the very worst of times, we're called to walk in this wisdom. So what do we do? What do we say when we're walking under the very worst of times? I think the teacher ends with that in verse 20 where he says, even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. And when we live in the very worst of times, it is, it's really easy to say even insolent things about leaders. It's really easy to mock. It's really easy to, to speak against leaders in a very unbecoming way, because it becomes so visceral. And what this is saying is, like, Alexa hears it all, you know? <laughs> That's what I hear. Alexa hears all of it. Right? On a, as a side note, I even wondered, two of the largest companies around are like a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it and, like, the bluebird. Isn't that crazy? Isn't there something about a piece of fruit and a bite? Uh, didn't, that didn't go really well, right? I mean, <laughs> Didn't go very well. Here we are with the apple with a bite out of it and the bluebird to tell everyone about all the stuff that comes out of that. People are listening. Peter says, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not vi- revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think that would be a good way to live. I think that would be a wise way to live. (laughs) Following the wisdom of Jesus. Following the pattern of Jesus. If you think about the gospel in in light of this passage, when Jesus was crucified they, they wrote above his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, one commentator noted. And I I took note of that this week. And they used it to mock him. And as this passage is talking about kings and leaders and rulers, they literally wrote, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, over his head. And they mocked him. The world laughed and mocked. Even the religious leaders laughed and they mocked. And that poor carpenter from that poor city of Nazareth, saved all those who would put their faith and trust in him through the wisdom of God, which seemed like folly to the world. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. And folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus is not the strong, unrighteous king who can't even conquer a small, poor city. He is the strong and righteous king who conquered the seemingly strongest things that we would ever face, Satan and sin and death, and through the meekness and the perceived weakness of the cross would gain the greatest victory. Like that poor wise man in the city with the unrighteous king coming against it, Jesus the poor carpenter from Nazareth hung on a cross Foolish to everyone else. Wisdom to God. And wisdom to the people who see it for what it is and place their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Like the poor wise man who saved the city that was forgotten, though Jesus is often forgotten. I mean, Jesus is the centerpiece of human history. Just take a look. But, But he's forgotten by almost everyone in history. Even though he saved their... Saved all of them from from the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Enemies they could never defeat. Jesus accomplished it. And then, well, everyone just forgot about it. Like the wise man who helped save the city. And then everyone just forgot. And so if you're a Christian this morning, do you remember Jesus? Will you remember Jesus? Will you remember everything that he saved you from? Will you remember all that he's done for you? And will, will you live your life in the wisdom that, that he offers? And if you're not yet a Christian this morning and you're joining us, this is a, this is a kind of a weird passage. <laughs> kind of a hard one to join us for maybe. But I want to ask you, will you remember Jesus this morning? Will you remember Jesus who, as Christians we believe, came to live a life for us that we could never live, a perfectly sinless life? in the midst of a really foolish world. He died uh, on the cross, we believe as Christians, in our place, on the cross for our sins. that He took the weight of all of the sin that we commit in all of our foolishness. And we believe that he rose from death three days later to forgive of of our sins and to free us to live a life uh, that we could never live otherwise, a, a life that's free to live in the wisdom of God, not in the foolishness of the world. Will you remember Jesus this morning and will you receive all that he's done for you? The poor carpenter from Nazareth. I believe this is the good news for us this morning. And if you're new with us at the village, we always want to leave you good news every morning. Even even with hard passages like this because we believe Jesus is only and he's altogether good. And so I think the good news for this morning is something like this. That through the wisdom of God in the cross, we can have God's wisdom for life, this life, and for the life to come. That is God's people by God's grace, because we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus. We can have God's wisdom for the life that we're living here, both in our work, in our words, and in everything. And we can also have God's wisdom for the life to come. It's good news. Will you pray with me? Jesus, in a world that's um, filled with um, filled with so much folly, we thank you that you. You were obedient, and you came to the cross, and you um, you set your face like flint towards Jerusalem, and you went there, and you demonstrated the wisdom of God, in what the whole world saw as complete foolishness. Father, we thank you for ordaining that to be true before the foundation of the world, and we ask. Um, that you, Holy Spirit, would remind us of these things. Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance all the things that you've taught us. We pray now that, that by your Spirit, you would bring us remembrance of these things that you've taught us, about you and your life and your death and your resurrection, about you being literally the wisdom of God. Jesus, we loved you. We love you, so we sing to you. We remember you. We ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.